So that was my initial goal was that I wanted to find a property that I could syndicate with somebody or if nothing else at a smaller scale property, I could JV with somebody because I had some other people that were willing to JV with me on something. Everything I looked at, just the returns were not satisfying my expectations for what I wanted to get out of it. I saw it as a bit too risky to ask somebody else to put their money into it. And so I was just kind of being patient and kept looking for better returns. I was like, there's got to be something better out there. Of course, during this point, I'd say the markets went crazy. Everybody, it seems like my grandma was doing a syndication and there was 20 offers on every property. So you have to really outbid everybody else, have a very strong offer. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and today's guest is Don Spadford. Don has an educational and professional background in finance and security investing, and he's also held several management leadership positions in corporate finance before jumping into real estate. In 2021, he joined Happy Camper Capital, where his team focuses on syndicating RV barks. As our listeners know, I am very bullish on this space, so I'm super excited to have this conversation. Don, welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. My pleasure. Love being here and love talking about this. Absolutely. Always like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Boy, you know what? It's kind of funny. I like the name of this podcast a lot because honestly, I say I'm an ice cream connoisseur. My favorite food is ice cream. <laughs> so, uh oh, we're going to go for um, an hour on ice cream then. That's right. For many years growing up, I'd say my favorite is always mint chip, but probably in the last uh, maybe 10, 15 years, I'd say it's actually blueberry pomegranate chocolate chunk, which can be found at some Kroger retailers. They haven't found it. It's kind of disappeared. Look, it's fortunate, but that's been my more favorite one recently. That is a very niche ice cream. And I know you're in Idaho. Do they have blueberry pomegranate? Chocolate chip in Idaho, or where'd you find that? It's chocolate chunk, but not chocolate chunk. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. But yeah, the store brand for Kroger. So it's one of their Kroger brand ice creams, actually. Any Kroger store used to have it. They said that the local one here that I used to buy it from, I haven't seen it for a while. So I don't know if they stopped making that specific flavor or just here. I don't know. But yeah, if you can find it at a Kroger store, definitely try it out. I am actually going out to the grocery store later today, and there's a Kroger two minutes from me. So hopefully they've got it there. <laughs> Don, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? As you mentioned, my main focus is with Happy Camper Capital. We purchase RV resorts, campgrounds, and marinas across the country. And we do this for several reasons, which we'll get into, but primarily one, because the cash flows and returns are excellent. And then also just because they're a lot more fun than multifamily or self-storage or anything else. So that's kind of my main focus. I have several other things I do outside of that. I'm involved with another team that does ground up, build to rent multifamily, a couple of JV deals I've got, like some commercial development for retail space. So I'm kind of across the board on multiple different things here, but yeah, definitely my primary focus these days are with Happy Camper Capital. Awesome. And if our listeners out there that are listening and not watching on YouTube, you've got a little sign right behind you that says investor. Where you play. And that's why I'm actually super interested in this space because yeah. we were chatting beforehand. I took a Sprinter van tour through Oregon earlier in 2022 and got a chance to see the different campgrounds out there and the different experiences you have. And that's where my mind went to like, why don't I just buy one of these things and be able to invest <laughs> and play at the same time? But before yeah. we get there, where did your real estate journey begin? As you mentioned at the very beginning, my background is in finance, investment science, portfolio management. I graduated with that degree in 2008, pretty much the worst time to graduate with a finance degree. Everything financial jobs were being laid off. I luckily had a job at the time. So I just kind of stayed on there where I was at, but didn't quite get to fulfill my dream at that point was to go on to essentially become like a financial advisor, portfolio manager, something along those lines, study for the CFA exam and other things. But then I was like, well, what's the point of this if there's no job? So I took a turn, made a shift back into actually to accounting. So I actually went back and got an accounting degree and planned to study for the CPA exam instead, but just family needs.
needs of the time made it very difficult to set aside time to study for those things. So I just decided to stay content with where I was at the time and, and figured out later. So about 11 years ago, so my wife became a realtor, actually. At this point, we lived in Omaha, Nebraska, and some of her first clients were investors. And that's really where I guess my mind started to consider more about real estate investing more than stocks like I'd previously had done. Now, that was kind of where the, the starting point was. But not knowing where to start or how to begin, I just kind of still was lost. The mindset will do that real estate investing is for the ultra rich and wealthy that the average person can't just do it. But I started learning and discovered that, okay, yeah, you can. But it took a while. It took several years after that before I actually could make that happen. I still didn't have a large amount of money to put down for a down payment. As most people assume are taught that you need 20 to 25% down payment on investment property. I later discovered after I moved to Idaho at this point that you don't necessarily need that much. I found there are lenders that can do a 10% down payment. There are other things, of course, you can do like house hacking. And aside from that, just buying a pure investment property, I found a local lender for me that would do a 10% down payment. And I borrowed most of that down payment from my 401k to make that happen. And that was to buy a fourplex in 2017. And the reason I went with that is mainly because I knew I wanted to get into real estate. And from all my research analysis and things I've read and studied, I guess, to me indicated that multifamily or multiple doors was the better option than going single family. And I saw it from my perspective as the risk aversion side of it, that it's also less risky having more doors than a single family that if it's vacant, I've got to pay the rent or say the mortgage. And if I have to replace the carpets, that pretty much wipes out my <laughs> income for a year probably. So I was like, okay, if I have a multifamily, at least a fourplex was the most I could go for on a normal residential loan. So I got a fourplex, assuming that most likely it's not going to ever have all four units vacant at the same point. So I was like, as long as at least two of them are in there, that should at least be enough to cover the mortgage. And so so that was my starting point. That's really what got me past that hump and get things going. And luckily for me, it was a home run property, really. I still own it today. I just refinanced it earlier this year to pull out way more than I put down, reinvest nice. that, of course, to continue to, to multiply that income. And so essentially that, that property is now cash flowing at infinite returns, but it's still because of the lower interest rates and the margin on it, it's basically still cash flowing now what it was before I refinanced it. So it essentially made no difference on my cash flow, but I pulled out six figures to reinvest in something else. It's one of the great benefits of real estate that you can essentially build up your own bank within it if you do it properly. Yeah, beautiful. And I I'm jealous that you found multifamily first, unlike most of us who went down the single family route and got our shins kicked in for a couple of properties before we realized <laughs> that scale matters. You're yeah. actually the first person I think I've had on the show that's borrowed from their 401k. And during 2020, they had some provisions out there that you could actually do that with no penalties and things like that. Can you talk us through that process, why you decided to do that, some pros and cons against it? So I did this in 2017 before that, that 2020 thing, but there was also some fear in there. I wasn't sure if all the advice you hear from people, you don't touch your retirement accounts. That's you're crazy. You leave it alone. You need that for your retirement, all that kind of stuff. But the way I looked at that was, okay, my 401k balance, it wasn't growing that great. There was, of course, ups and downs. There was times when it had great returns and there were times when it didn't. I had literally no savings, very little savings at all. I had more debt than anything else. And honestly, that's what kind of why I saw real estate as my only option, really, say, saving grace to change our current situation, to have a better future than to just continue down the path I was going, which would probably end up in bankruptcy because the way things are going. I needed to produce more income without necessarily working more hours and build wealth at the same point. When I learned that you can borrow from your 401k. So I'm not talking about taking withdrawal which would, or distribution, which would incur fees and taxes. I just essentially borrowed for myself. I got to pay it back. I think most 401ks allow you to borrow for real estate anyway, especially for your primary home. If you borrow mm -hmm. for your primary residence, you can essentially extend it out like 30 years, I think. But in my case, I had up to five years I could choose to pay it back. So I choose the maximum five years to pay it back. It gets paid back with interest, but the interest goes back to myself anyway. So basically I'm just paying myself to borrow for myself. For me, it was pretty much my only option to get the money I needed for this down payment. And luckily again, it was only 10%. So basically I think I only borrowed like 20,000 from my 401k and you made up the difference for myself, an extra 6,000, but 26,000 down is fourplex, which is now worth like three times probably what I paid for it. But yeah, so knowing that I need to get started, 
And there was really no other option. This was to me, it was like, what else am I going to do? It was like, it's one of those things either got to work or it's going to fail. And I've got to take that chance. I got to take that risk. I trusted my calculations for my analysis on the numbers. I was like, it is going to work. It has to work. The only way it's not going to work is if I make it fail from not managing it. Being that it was my property and my family at stake, basically, I made sure I did everything I could to make sure it does not fail. And obviously, we've succeeded with that. Once I learned that I could borrow from my 401k, that was for me, it's like a light bulb moment. I was like, okay, I can get into this sooner than I thought. If I try to save up enough money, even at a 10% down payment, it's going to take forever. I probably never get there. This is the best way for me at that moment to get started. Can't necessarily advise that for everybody. Everybody's personal situations are different. But for me at that time, it was my best option. And I definitely do not regret it or I look back, wish I would have something different. It was the starting point for everything I'm doing today. And obviously that property is the value of that property and what I've pulled out of it already is actually already worth more than what my 401k balance is today with that yeah. loan paid back at this point. It's so definitely worth it. Let me ask, I know every 401k plan is different. So this might be individualized to you versus a broadband sweeping rule of thumb, but did they securitize, collateralize that amount of money and set it aside and allowed your stock positions to keep on growing? Or is that money pulled out of the market because you just basically sell the assets and they hold that money in cash? Like, How do they do that? So in my case, yeah, essentially they basically sold the assets for that value, whatever equal distribution between them and pulled it out. That money was not earning while it was out in the 401k. Obviously it's earned more than that anyway, so I don't really care. I'd pull the whole amount right now if I could. It's not like we'll say an infinite banking concept that uses life insurance account where you still dividends while it's using it. Again, for me, I would definitely do it again if I had to. Gotcha. And then the second thing was, were you allowed to still contribute to your 401k or did you have to pay back the loan first? Still contributing. Essentially what I did actually, I lowered my contribution amount. That loan is automatically pulled out to pay back from each paycheck. I lowered my contribution amount to more or less offset that. So it didn't affect my actual living income too much. So that's what I did to make that happen. I was still contributing to it while it was also paying itself back. Gotcha. Okay. So for our listeners out there that have got lost in all that, in certain instances, you can actually collateralize an asset and allow that asset to continue to grow. In this situation, they actually took down some of that and sold some underlying asset to give you the loan, which means that part wasn't growing, but you were still able to contribute to the 401k while the other part of your 401k was allowed to continue to grow while you paid back the loan. So talk us through, you got this four plus you're making a killing on it, it sounds like. How did you get involved in camping grounds? It was not direct beeline direction. I didn't go, I'm going to buy my force plex. Now I'm going to go buy uh, some campgrounds. But in the standard journey, I think as most real estate investors do, you set out on one path and then years down the road, you end up somewhere else you didn't expect to. Obviously, when I started out by that fourplex, not necessarily intention, but no idea of getting into bigger commercial properties. Of course, I wanted to. My multiple goal was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. But at that point, still thinking small scale, I can't do that. I don't have the resources. I don't have the connections. At that starting point, I didn't know how to do that. But just going down the path I was going, I was on the path to continue buying more fourplexes. I took a year and a half before I bought anything else, we've got a couple more fourplex. And then just from during that time period, the, the connections I was making with people, which is I think primarily the primary thing that really launched me to where I'm in today was just making those connections, networking with people, getting on investor lists and wholesale lists and brokers lists and all these different kinds of things. That just led to opportunities that happened to come up. And how I ended up in campgrounds though specifically was probably about early 2021 is when I really increased my networking game. I started doing a lot more virtual networking that kind of yeah. came to be during 2020, 2021. Network with a lot more people across the country who I'd never would have met otherwise. And I started getting more involved with other syndication groups, understanding more about how to do syndications and how to get involved with them. At this point, of course, knowing a lot more people that are doing it, I was able to see more opportunities to invest in those types of deals. So I started looking for ways that I could bring value to a group. I still didn't really have a lot of money to invest in the other syndications. So I was like, if I find a great property, I can take it to one of these groups and say, hey, here's this property I got. Happy to come in as a even small percentage of GP to share in this with you guys and that you do your thing just so I can learn the process. So that was my initial goal was that I wanted to find a property that I could syndicate with somebody. Or if nothing else, at a smaller scale property, I could JV with somebody because I had some other people that were 
rolling JV with me on, on something. Everything I looked at, just the returns were not satisfying my expectations for what I wanted to get out of it. I saw it as a bit too risky to ask somebody else to put their money into it. And so I was just kind of being patient and kept looking for better returns. I was like, there's got to be something better out there. And of course, during this point, I'd say the markets went crazy. Everybody it seems like my grandma was doing a syndication and there was 20 offers on every property. So you have to really outbid everybody else, have a very strong offer. 20 goes hard day one kind of thing. And how are you going to compete with that? That just doesn't make sense. So I was like, let me go back to just looking at other people's deals and I'll just invest as, a, as an LP investor in somebody else's deal. I was still, based off my expectations, which kind of goes back to that very first fourplex yeah. I bought and the, the high returns I was getting from it. I was like, if I'm getting 40% plus cash on cash on a fourplex, I want at least double digits on a multifamily or bigger apartment buildings. I was not satisfied with a six to 8% cash on cash return and 2x multiple over five years. That's not good enough. I just kept searching and, and looking at other asset classes and seeing what could be out there. And during this time, I listened to a lot of podcasts. Every single day, W2 job, I would listen to podcasts all day while I was working. And so on one of these podcasts that somebody mentioned RV campgrounds as an investment option and the kind of returns they were getting on it. That sounds interesting. Where I live now in Eastern Idaho, it's about an hour and a half away from Yellowstone Park. It's a very high camping area, obviously, mountains and lakes and things. So everybody around here has campers and RVs. So I saw this as a unique opportunity, maybe. So my initial response to that and hearing about these campgrounds, again, not having the connections or anything about it to go and try to do it myself. I started going to different meetups, I guess webinars, talking about campgrounds just to connect with people in that space and people that were looking to buy. I put myself out there to be a boots on the ground. I could go to the property, take some videos, pictures, whatever. My wife is a realtor, so we could help with the purchase. Assuming there's got to be somebody that wants to buy something here near Yellowstone. And so just in doing that and getting networking with people in that space, I met a couple of guys based out of Denver who had just closed their first property and were looking to grow and expand their team. And so we kind of discussed about the kind of returns they were getting and the goals they had in the long term of where they wanted to go with the company. And again, I was basically still looking for partners, really going back to even that the multifamily stuff I was trying to find was partners, really. So I mean, we were talking to these guys, everything seemed to us to align and our goals were similar and our personality types seemed to work well. And so they invited me to join with them and that's Happy Camper Capital. I came on initially with them, helping with investor relations and just unintentionally scaled up what I was doing with them to more or less prove my worth. And eventually within six months or less, I was invited to join them as one of the partners in the company. That was not really my intention or, or desire, we'll say, but it was just more of, I was trying to do everything I could to grow the company and uh, do my part to kind of just go above and beyond. And they were happy with my results, my enthusiasm for the company. And so, yeah, that's how I end up where I'm at now. Beyond seeing some of the opportunity, given the location that you lived, was it the returns that attracted you? Was it the fact that it was pretty niche opportunity? Did you invest in one of these opportunities first? Talk us through that process. So initially, definitely the returns were what got my attention. We were talking double or triple what I was seeing in anything else as far as cash flow. So my number one goal has always been cash flow first. The equity gains are great and all that stuff, but my ultimate goal was cash flow because I wanted to eventually replace my W-2 income. And the only way I can do that is with consistent cash. I want to wait five years to get a big equity boost. I have to wait during that time. So I want cash flow now. So these properties tend to produce on average about a 15% cash on cash or more. And so that for me definitely caught my attention because most other things are around six or seven. So I was like, wow, that's incredible. So I could essentially get to that cash flow point I wanted to much sooner with less money out of pocket than investing in multiple other syndication. Again, trying to find other properties that were pretty much impossible to even submitted offers on other fourplexes and things, but always got outbid. So yeah, I saw that as a very cool opportunity. And then on top of that, what really, I guess, got me more thinking about what potential is, I guess, is here. Again, because of where I live, a lot of my neighbors have campers or RVs. They go camping all the time. I had talked to many of them in the past about investing with me in, in some multifamily deals. None of them were interested. It's not something they understand. They don't get it. It's outside of their knowledge base. They're safe and comfortable with their IRAs and that's it. When I approached some of them before I joined Happy Camper Capital, I was kind of doing my own research 
research outside of that. And I was just asking my neighbors, like, what would you think about investing in a campground? And surprise to me, they were all excited about it. Now, this is something they use. They understand it. Kind of like you were saying yourself with your experience visiting those places in Oregon. It's something they use. They're like, wow, I can invest in that. Sure. Why not? It's kind of why I use the tagline that you know, those that can see the video have my screen and invest where you play. It's, I like it, I guess, to the fact if people love, say, Apple, iPhones and all that kind of stuff, then they should invest in Apple stock. It's something they use and they, they love it. Why not invest in it? So it's kind of the same type of thought process with that. So I saw that being there's possibly a very unique niche of investors that may not want to invest in other types of real estate, but would invest in campgrounds. And most people that own RVs or campers are typically higher income people anyway to be able to afford that type of a luxury item. Okay. So potentially our own users of these campgrounds could be our investors in those same properties. So I was like, okay, this is something that's worth exploring and at least giving it a try. I didn't know what would happen or could happen when I first joined it, but I just saw the opportunity and did not want to regret five years later, looking back and saying, why didn't I give that a try? Two things I want to pull out of there is one, you talked about investing for cash flow, and I'm just a guy on the internet. Don't take advice from me, but <laughs> I completely agree with that. If you're trying to get to financial independence, you need to be thinking about cash flow first and income that you can receive off your assets before you start thinking about appreciation and tax plays and all those sorts of things. I just think once you have a steady income stream coming in that provides for basic necessities, then you're playing a different ball game. where if you just bury the money in the ground into a development project and hopefully five years from now, it's worth more. The second thing I wanted to say was really around this idea of campgrounds. I think that it is short-term pricing and short-term returns on a scale yep. because you have dynamic pricing. You could charge for different types of experiences, whether they be 4th of July or national park passes or anything like that. But it also interests me in the number of income streams you can get off of a property as well. So when I was out in Oregon, for instance, we had the opportunity to buy internet or not buy internet and buy a shower or not buy a shower and just different things like that. What are you all doing with your properties right now to also to secure more income streams from the asset itself? Yeah. On average, most properties have at least 10 different income streams. So it's not relying 10? just solely on, yeah, on average, wow. I'd say. So we're never relying solely just on rent. Like with the multifamily, you're going to have pretty much your rent is your number one thing. Maybe some laundry income or, or pet fees or something. But aside from that, you're primarily depending on the rent. Obviously, in this case, we are too. That's still our primary income. But the other income sources help add additional to that. What we do, of course, we want experience, right? We want somebody to come back over and over again to come back here because they have fun. They enjoy being there, bring their friends and family. So it's not just a place to come park your camper and sleep overnight. That's not what we buy. More like more fortunate was an RV park. There's the different types of classes within the RV industry. Your side of the road place, your people just pull over just to sleep and move on the next day. Then you got your RV parks that are kind of more like a long-term stay, like mobile home park. Then we have our RV resorts and the, like most like higher end destination campgrounds. And that's kind of what we are in that space. What you said was exactly right. How I tell people to consider why these places earn so much income. It's because it's like a short-term rental at a multifamily scale, really. So with that, we're getting, yeah, like I said, the income produced on each spot is going to vary based on the day of the week, the time of the month, time of year. Around holiday times, of course, goes up. As they get more filled up, demand goes up. Those renting spaces go up in rent. But on top of that, we're, like you said, there's typically other things we have going on. You're not just coming here to camp and cook some s'mores. We have, in most cases, some type of water feature, like a lake, a river. So we're going to have boat slips to the dock. People go boating with, we have an aqua park could be there. So people are out on basically a giant bounce house thing on water. Of course, yeah, you pay to use. In some cases, we have concert venues. So we'll bring in concert events for weekends or summer concerts to bring people out there that may not even be coming here for camping, but they're going to come here for the concert. And while they're there, spend money on the convenience store or the restaurant or other things that are there on site. Then that also, in most cases, it's some type of a convenience store that sells goods that people are going to need snacks, whatnot. We may possibly have restaurants, which we don't necessarily run the restaurants, but we rent out the building to a restaurant Sweet. that runs it and does a lot of stuff. We, we don't want to have anything to do with the food prep stuff. Could have golf cart rentals or ATV rentals or horseback riding things. Like I said, pay to use the, the internet. When we take over property, one of the things 
things we're implementing, of course, is the charge back the user for the electricity they use, if possible, the water. First of all, the utilities, if we can charge back, we're going to charge back. In particular, we know that there's more electric vehicles coming through. We definitely want to make sure that those electric vehicles are, are being charged for the electricity they use because they could suck up a full month's usage in one night. So yeah, so, so all those things are going to add back to our income streams. And of course, you get the laundry facilities and bathhouses and all those kind of things. Again, there's just multiple different things that we could do. And what's great about it is there's almost unlimited upside, really. As far as what you can think of to add something on, you can do something there and bring in more income. In some cases, we even, so some properties that would be, say, more seasonal than others, cold climate areas that have snow, you may think there's not as many people camping during winter. That may or may not be the case, depending on what's going around there. People still go skiing or ice fishing and stuff like that. But we'll say the generic sense, we have a property in Iowa that we are doing a drive-through Christmas light display on the property. So there may not be as many campers there, but people will still come and pay to, to drive through and see this Christmas awesome. light stuff. And we're still bringing another income during that off season. So yeah, there's multiple things you can do to think of to capitalize as much as you can on these properties. Yeah. I love this asset class because you can secure so many different income streams from it. But also I have this thought that my mind goes to people will pay for experiences. You think if we drove our RV all the way across the country with our two little ones and we are there for a month that they're not going to pay to go swim in the lake or be on a boat or do horseback riding. Of course they are. They just spent all this money to be there. They're going to have the experience. I guess a quick question on that is you mentioned in the food service, you just lease out the building, which is genius. Right. But do you also run the services like the boats, the ATVs, the horseback riding, or do you subcontract that out as well? And you just pay like a fee for them to perform their business on your property? It depends. We've done both, I think. So in most cases, the boat docks are there for people to have their own boats just to pay for the slip, really. But there, there may be other cases where we have, we'll see an agreement with a local business that maybe does some like excursions out to take some out to go fishing or whatever. In that case, that's usually their boat and their business. They just essentially pay us to use the space to provide that to the people there. So I can't really give a blanket statement because it's going to vary by property. What makes sense at the property to do and what's nearby to utilize? So fully operating and running business that's there, it makes more sense for us just to use them and have them run at that business and pay us for the option than to try to implement that completely ourselves too. Gotcha. So it sounds like in this space, cash on cash is higher because it's more transient, dynamic pricing, people are paying for experiences, multiple different asset streams, et cetera. But one of the reasons why most investors really like real estate is this idea of taxes as well well, being able to depreciate, things like that. What does the tax structure look like on an investment in RV part? So you're referring more about depreciation? Yeah. So when I invest in a multifamily, I'll get a big loss on my K-1 statement that I can then file against my other passive income streams. Neither of us are tax professionals. I don't know even what I just said then. I'm just a guy on the internet, but as you are as well, so you're not giving tax advice. But what does the typical tax structure look like on these? Yeah. So you'd be surprised. Honestly, it's a lot more than what you'd expect. So when I first got involved, that was one of my first questions, what's the cost seg? look like. Assuming in my mind is it's mostly land, what's there to depreciate? As I've talked to several cost segregation experts. Again, this is not word for word where they told me or anything. Like I said, I'm not a tax advisor, but there's actually quite a bit of depreciation to, to take into account. On all these properties, you've got your infrastructure there, all the roads that go in, all the utility connections. That's a big part of it right there, just those types of improvements. In some cases, depending on the property, of course, there may or may not be buildings or a lot of buildings, but all those other infrastructure items actually count for quite a bit. And depending on the type of property or the type of improvement brings on different types of, what we call it the amortized five-year or 15-year or whatever depreciation. So with that, of course, it's going to vary by property. Property, but and typically from ones that I've seen potentially could be more than what you are getting from multifamily. That's awesome because I saw that as a potential downside because you can't depreciate land. You can only depreciate physical infrastructure. Never even thought about the roads and the infrastructure for the plumbing and things like that. So when you're looking at this space right now, tell us a little bit about the properties you're going after. Are there specific, specific geographics? Do they have to meet a certain pad limit? All those sorts of things that go into finding a property. What's your buy box? Yeah, yeah. To kind of keep it as simple as possible, we, our two basic criteria is the size and location. So yeah, we want ones that are least 
around or above 100 existing rentable spaces. That does not necessarily mean fully RV pads, but it could be a mixture of RV pads, dry camping spaces, whatever. At least 100 or so existing camping spaces. Preferably if there's room to expand even better. If there's additional acreages next door, we can acquire as part of it to expand that out. That's always ideal and usually one of our number one things we look for. Aside from that, the location is as what you'd attested to. People are driving in some cases long distance, but in some cases now with gas prices high, people may not be taking a cross-country trip. Right? You may not drive from Oregon to, say, Tennessee to go camping. What we shoot for are properties that are within two or maximum of three-hour drive of a major metropolitan area, preferably within two or three big cities nearby. And kind of reason for that, again, goes back to those gas prices. First of all, number one, if you have an RV or camper, you want to use it. You don't want just sitting in your driveway and then, mm-hmm. or paying to store it somewhere. You want to go have fun with it. And so you're going to go out and use it. On a more regular basis, we're going to get a lot of the local people come to our properties, making that two or three hour drive to go have fun. And so that's our second criteria is this, that location. We want that geographic nearness to have most of our users are going to be those close by residents that are coming out to have fun. Got it. I know one of the things we were talking about before the show as well as this idea when you're in syndications, you're raising on a deal by deal basis and we're starting to see a shift more towards funds. I would assume after 2020 and 2021, this space is exploding with opportunity right now. How are you all structuring kind of your offerings for investors as well? Yeah. So previously, all of our deals have always been 506B, which means you have to not have to be accredited, which also means for us, we cannot advertise those openly. But the reason we had that as our goal was to help people to become accredited investors, to be able to get into these types of deals, to get greater cash flow, to just improve their overall personal finance. But as you said, the space has grown so much and, and our group in particular, Happy Camper Capital, has become a very, I guess, household name as, as far as when you think of RV resorts investing. And uh, so with that, we have actually such a tremendous amount of deal flow now that it's hard for us to raise individual deals one by one. And in some cases, we're doing two or three at the same time, which makes it even more complicated when you focus on only 506B. So we have just recently launched a 506C fund to bring on, obviously, in that case, accredited investors to help fund multiple deals for us. So we have launched a $25 million fund. And the idea for that is to hold between five to eight properties within that fund. And of course, all these properties, we're not just grabbing anything that comes up. Our criteria is still high as far as our expectations for cash flows and overall returns. So we're not just accepting anything that comes in. We still have our own personal criteria that we strictly go through with all of our due diligence for everything to make sure that these meet our standards to put into this fund. So everybody that gets into this fund is essentially going to participate in all these geographical dispersed properties to help overcome some of that seasonality of the income we're talking about. So you get ones that are some in the north, some in the south, east and west, whatever. So therefore, the income becomes more stable throughout the year to become more consistent. Rather than having a bulk of your income coming between two quarters of the year, you're getting it now kind of split out throughout the whole year more evenly. So yeah, so we just launched that fund for that purpose. Again, to not have to compete with ourselves to try to raise for two or three deals at the same time that we hopefully have in this fund ready to go. And we just continue to bring on more properties. Even with that, it is a blind fund, but as opposed to most other blind funds, you will know what's going into it. Every time we get a new property that's going to go into that fund, we're going to do a webinar to show you exactly why this property meets our criteria and why it's going to the fund. So you can see there for yourself the kind of returns and expectations that you can see from that fund. And we definitely have plans to launch additional funds down the road, but this is our first one. We're just getting it started and we'll see where it goes after this. But Don, the main question is, if I'm an investor in your fund, do I get to stay on the campgrounds for free at least one night a year? Yes, actually more than one night a year. We actually, for our investors, we provide up to one week free stay per year at all of our properties and discounts after that throughout the whole year. Don, leave uh, so with we, the good yeah, news we, first. That's awesome. We, you, you sold- we, yeah, we want our investors to use our properties. We, we want you to go there and have those experiences, have fun with your friends and family, and then tell your friends about it. And so they'll come back as well and invest with us. That's awesome. Fantastic conversation. Thank you for allowing us to dig into this space a little bit more because I'm super bullish on it. But I want to transition us now into the last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what's a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? 
So I've read quite a few books recently. Honestly, prior to getting into real estate, I never really read many books. I don't like reading. But after I got into real estate, I discovered I love reading about real estate and finance and actually taxes. I've read quite a few textbooks. I'm actually reading a great textbook now. But as far as paradigm shifts, like my number one choice, I guess, that I've read recently, honestly, is The Richest Man in Babylon. It's a fairly short read and not necessarily real estate specific, but these are the time I read it for me and how I interpreted it. I saw all kinds of great information, tips, advice, I guess, just in general of personal finance. So I love that book a lot. An oldie but goodie. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the things that you do every day? I still listen to podcasts. So I still get my education from a lot of podcasts such as this one. I'm still trying to continue to learn. I definitely don't know everything. So I like to listen to podcasts to hear about different things, different tactics and experiences people have done so I can learn from them. So that's something I do every day. In addition to, I still like to look for and analyze properties as they come up just to kind of see, stay up to speed of where the market trends are at. What's the, these properties worth today as opposed to a year from now. I like to just stay on top of those type of things. Keeping that muscle strong. I like it. Third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Can't say that I've ever received a whole lot of great advice over my life, but probably one that I'll go with this one, I guess. So it's one that actually I share quite a bit with people. I don't know who I heard it from or where I heard it originally, but it's an old one I'm sure you've heard as well. But anytime we go to a wedding and somebody asks you to put a suggestion or advice for the newlyweds, I always say, live below your means and invest the rest. I try to live by that. Sounds like a richest man from Babylon quote too. <laughs> it could be. Fourth one is, what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Most proud of, I guess. Based on cliche, I have to go with my family. I always try to put family first and my faith first above everything else. Anything else that comes in to interfere with those things, I have to cut it out or, or avoid it. I, I don't schedule meetings on weekends or at nights after a certain hour. That's my family time. I don't do business on Sundays. And so I try to just live with those things. Love it. Our last one is, if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Man, I want to say Warren Buffett, but I actually almost had the opportunity to sit down with him for lunch one time anyway, but I didn't. Is that Man, like a uh, requirement for living in Nebraska? One of the benefits <laughs> is you get to sit down with Buffett anytime Honestly, you want. It was more of the benefit of going to the school that's right next to his house, being in the investment science field. So anyone, I guess it's a hard one. No, I guess maybe I'll go with something I never even thought about. Just pop my head. I'll go with uh, George Washington, founding president of our country and here all the experiences that he went through to do all the things they had to do to make our country what it is today. Actually a more common answer than you would think. People say that. We're going to go do back and do a tally of who said what, <laughs> how many times. Pretty sure Elon's number one, but George is up there. Uncle George. Nice. Well, Don, fantastic conversation. I appreciate you coming on the show and talking through RV parks and different asset class that we haven't explored before. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you and learn more about you and what you've got going on there at Happy Capper Capital, where's the best place we could put? I'm very active on LinkedIn. So you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. You can go to our website, happycampercapital.com. You can find me there on the About Us tab. You can find my name and actually schedule a call with me directly from that. And of course, we'd invite you to register on our website while you're there to learn more about our investment opportunities as they come up and to learn more about the fund as well. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.